Well, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who once said, the beautiful rest on the foundations of the necessary. Okay, that's kind of an interesting statement there, so you have to think about it for just a moment. The beautiful rests on the foundations of the necessary. And the point that he makes features the importance and the vital role that foundations provide. Historic figures from Napoleon to Henry David Thoreau have made references to the importance of good foundations. And the reason for so much focus on a foundation is due to the very thing that we might expect because everything that you build goes on top of them. In a building, the foundation carries the load of a structure as well as any other future anticipated loads such as furniture and people and other things that you can put inside the building, okay, furnishings. And when a foundation is plumb and level, everything that goes on top of it will be simpler to install. The future construction of a building depends upon the building foundation being steadfast and sure. What's also important is even the soil that's underneath that supports the foundation. And sometimes those who have dealt with any type of construction knows that there's instances where the soil needs to be replaced so that the foundation can be amended and is capable of, of bridging if you extend the foundation. When it comes to building projects and life in general, the foundation is the most important work and the basis of everything that comes after. And this is true in the physical realm, and it's just as true in the spiritual realm. Our Lord even instructs us to see the significance of a person's foundation. In Matthew chapter 7, when speaking to the wise man, he draws a contrast between two houses, right? And he says that the wise man built his house on the what? On the rock. Yeah, and the fool, he built his house on the sand. And when the storms and the floods of life came and slammed into that house that was, that was built upon the rock, it remained standing. Again, the foundation was the key. There's another foundation in the scripture that mentions uh, the foundation of God's house. And it's in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. When speaking of God's household, it says that it has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. God's blueprint involves using human beings in his plans. And our study in Mark chapter 3 is helping us see the foundation that 12 hand-picked men would provide for the church as they spent their lives serving Christ and helping to establish the foundation of the New Testament church. Of course, Christ is the cornerstone to the foundation, and he helped them align their lives according to God's purposes and will. Let's read our passage and continue our study. If you haven't been here with us, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 13 through 19. Starting in verse 13. It says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. 
and he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Our study of this passage has us centered on a question that we've been progressively answering that still remains in your notes. What principles can you and I learn from Jesus' four-part approach to handpicking his 12 disciples? Our first message focused on the first three verses that helped us consider some principles that we can apply as we saw Jesus personally call, disciple, and commission the 12. And then last week we began studying the significance of Christ personally identifying the 12 as we looked at the the significance of their number and the significance of each of them by name. And we were doing a vitae or a biblical sketch of their lives. And we covered Simon Peter last week, as well as James. And you'll notice in your notes that there's lines through them because we've got them covered. But we're going to continue working our way down through the list. And again, we'll consider principles that we might be able to apply to our lives as we look at their testimonies and our Lord's interactions with them. Next on the list, in the middle of verse 17, you'll notice is the Apostle John. And our verse reveals that John was also the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. And his family worked in the fishing industry with the sons of Jonah and the father of Simon, the father of Simon Peter and Andrew. Now, if you're ever out traveling, especially in the museums of the world or you go to any art institutes and you ever see any pictures that portray uh, the Apostle John, they really display him as a, a guy as who is really kind of thin, um, weak-looking, almost just emaciated. It doesn't look like he did anything outdoors at all. It looks like he was actually born in a cave, and he, in some photos, even looks like he's just anorexic or, has, or starved. I mean, just has not been healthy But this isn't an accurate reflection. John was from a family of fishermen. And even today, those who make their living as fishermen are physically strong and tough, tough dudes. I mean, anyone ever seen the show, The Deadliest Catch? Um, The Deadliest Catch is a show that's based out of Alaska, the Alaskan king crab fishermen. And these guys go out on these ships and they drop these big, heavy uh, crates that go down and and catch and and they're just it's hard backbreaking work. I mean, you have to be a strong, tough dude. Well, back then you you would have to haul in heavy wet nets over and over again. And when they had fish inside, they would be even heavier. And it was hard backbreaking work, typically performed throughout the night when it was cooler because the fish would be willing, when the water cooled down, would, would rise to the surface um, at night. John was one of the sons of Zebedee who made a good living as a fisherman. We know this because Mark one twenty tells us that Zebedee had hired servants. So you don't hire somebody if your business isn't doing so well. 
Okay, you're doing well, you're going to need additional labor. And Jesus, you'll recall, gave John and his brother James the nickname Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Hardly a name that you're going to give to a thin, pale, effeminate weakling, right? You don't give him the nickname uh, son of thunder. Okay, John was strong and a bold man, especially with that kind of nickname. And you may recall the impulsive and outlandish request to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village that earned this nickname for John and his brother James. Yet even though James, or excuse me, not James, John was immature and dealt with issues of pride like we all do, he was still brought into the innermost circle of the apostles and given extra special privileges. And we're eventually going to see what those privileges look like in the Gospel of Mark. When we get to Mark chapter 5, we're going to see that he was present for when Jairus' daughter was raised. And then we're going to see that he also was there for the transfiguration in Mark 9-2. And that he also um, received special instruction about the signs of Jesus coming at the end of the age in Mark 13-3. And I'm going to give you these texts again just to let you know where I pulled the information from. I realize that um, some people might have different itches that they want to scratch when I, I say something. I want to make sure you know where I got it. Luke 22.8 tells us John was one of the two disciples to help make preparations for the Passover meal before Jesus was crucified. And John also, according to Mark 14.33, was one of the disciples who was asked to stay awake, to stay alert, and to watch and pray while Jesus agonized in the garden before being arrested and crucified. After Jesus' death, like Peter, John showed that he was growing in his faith. And how was his faith growing? Well, according to John 20, verse 8, it was John who first believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead when he came and found the empty tomb of Christ. And according to Acts 4.13, 5.33, and 5.40, John and Peter were the two apostles who took the most heat from the unbelieving Jews in the early church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I want you to see this one. We're going to see an even clearer picture of John's growth together. Acts chapter 8, and in the context we see John and Peter ministering in Samaria. Look at verse 14. It says this, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now I realize that this passage has some very interesting nuances, but for the sake of making my point, I want to draw our attention to the beginning of verse 17. Then they began laying their hands on them. Think about that for a moment. The, the, the Apostle John, the man earlier who earned the nickname, who was walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, who wanted to call down Elijah-type fire to destroy a Samaritan village. Earlier. 
he and his counterparts would take the 40-mile detour instead of stepping foot on Samaritan soil. They would walk 40 miles out of their way so they didn't even have to touch the soil. Now he's seen in Acts 8.17 laying hands on and praying for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. If you'll recall his spiritual progress and journey, it sounds very familiar to, familiar to what his brother had gone through. Uh, his brother James, who preached the gospel and forgave the man who falsely accused him right before both men were beheaded. I shared that last week. And now John, who also at one time despised Samaritans and wouldn't touch their soil, is physically touching their person and praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. What growth. What spiritual transformation that the Lord allowed to take place in the Apostle John's life. Thankfully, nobody in our church would ever struggle with being prejudiced. That nobody we know would ever stereotype or look down upon other races or social classes. Yes, I'm being a little facetious here. And this is, I think, a principle of application that we can take from the testimony of the Apostle John. Our Lord can and will mature us so that we can value all people as souls, regardless of race, regardless of gender, education, or anything else that potentially could serve as a gospel impediment. As we mature in Christ and as we're grounded in the gospel, it helps us to make progress, just as John did seeing that there is neither Jew nor Greek, or in this case we can say, nor Samaritan. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, just as Galatians 3.28 states. What adds further insight into John's testimony and spiritual growth is that he would eventually become known as the apostle of love. His nearness to Christ radically changed him. And I want you to see this. You can, you can turn now over to John 13, 23. I'm going to read it for you. But in that verse, John 13, 23, it says that there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Question for you. Who was the disciple leaning on the Lord's chest? John, right? Who wrote this gospel account? John, right? And I don't think, thinking about this, that John wrote this verse in an attempt to elevate himself over the other apostles. I believe that he wrote it to elevate Christ because he recognized his own pride. And just how patiently the Lord Jesus Christ was with him. To give him time to grow as he was discipled and he was matured. And there was a time where he had to be rebuked because he wanted to call down the fire of judgment. And the Lord taught him a lesson. He taught him a lesson about God. That God is long-suffering. That word in the Greek, it means he's, it's, he's slow-burning. He, he doesn't have a quick fuse. It's a slow burning fuse. And all of us say amen to that. 
Thank you, Lord, for having a slow burning fuse. Something we'll be able to apply. Second hour. How much did the apostle John grow? Well, according to Galatians 2.9, John had the reputation of being one of three men who were known as the pillars of the church. And this tells us that John was a leader among the apostles. We know he had a passion for evangelism and is often called John the Evangelist. Even in his old age, he did not stop preaching the gospel. In Revelation 1.9, John, about 90 years old at this time, says he was exiled to Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Most of us who are familiar with the life stories of the apostles know that John was the only one, right, that did not suffer martyrdom, right? But that wasn't because nobody tried. Tradition says that under the persecution of Domitian, that John was thrown into boiling oil, which had no power to hurt him. In fact, I pulled up a picture that I found, and we'll pull it up. Here's, a, here, here's just, a, just to give you a, a picture. And um, it had no impact. And if the Lord had not extended grace, he would have suffered and died in that situation. But perhaps the gospel wasn't written. Perhaps revelation wasn't written. All these things, God was sovereign and kept him alive, and he was then sent to labor in the mines on the island of Patmos where he died as an old man. The next name on our list is found at the beginning of verse 18, and it's Andrew. And Andrew is Peter's brother, the son of Jonah, or John. Okay, we, Simon Peter's brother, right, is Simon Barjona. You could actually say Andrew Barjona, because they, they share the same father. Andrew means manly, which is a cool name for those of you who are expecting baby boys in the future. Have a little boy named Andrew. Manly. Call him Andrew. No. John 143 tells us that Andrew and Peter grew up in Bethsaida of Galilee. The word Bethsaida means house of fishing in Aramaic. Archaeologists are not certain about its location, but most likely it was located somewhere east of the Jordan River on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Andrew's father, again, a fisherman in partnership with Zebedee, the father of James and John. Matthew 4.18 says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. Later, according to Mark 1.29, Andrew and Peter had moved to Capernaum. And we don't know all the details, but apparently Andrew seemed to have this uh, obsession to, and, uh, and great curiosity. I don't know if I called it an obsession. Puts it in a negative context. But a great curiosity to find the Messiah. Maybe he was one of those people who inv investigated every false Messiah when he heard about him and went and moved. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist before becoming one of Jesus' disciples. And Andrew probably heard that there was this guy who was out preaching in the wilderness, who was baptizing people, and he was preparing, he was saying, make way, the Lord, the, the Messiah is coming. And he would have been one of the people who walked the 30-some miles through the hot desert to, to get out to 
to see John the Baptist preach and be baptized himself. And you can read about that account in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 40. And in that account, Andrew was one of two disciples of John the Baptist that had this one-on-one encounter and interaction with Jesus Christ. And afterward, if you'll recall, what Andrew did was he immediately went to tell Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. And remember, a disciple is a follower and a learner. An apostle is one sent forth with Christ's authority to preach and to perform miracles. It was Andrew in John 6, 8, and 9, who before the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, found a young boy with two fish and five barley loaves and brought him to Jesus. And Andrew commented saying, what are these for so many people? And then they both watched in awe as the Lord Jesus Christ took them. And we all know the story well. He multiplied them. They were fascinated when they saw that. It was Andrew and Philip in John 12, 21 and 22, who introduced some Greeks to Jesus. Philip became acquainted with the Greeks, and so he came to Andrew. And so Andrew seemed very comfortable bringing Gentiles to Jesus as well. Not much else is said about Andrew except that he was among those who asked Jesus about the signs of his coming and the end of the age in Mark 13, verses 3 and 4. And then later he's mentioned once again in Acts 1 when they list the apostles again. The early church father, Eusebius, tells us that Andrew took the gospel far north, northeast of the Black Sea, preaching to the barbaric Scythians. And this is why he's actually considered the patron saint of both Russia and Scotland. And my oldest sister, my eldest niece, graduated from university in Scotland last year, and it was known as St. Andrews. And that's why if you go over there, you can always find um, churches, golf courses, um, schools, towns. They're, they're named after Andrew. It is said that Andrew died in Achaia in southern Greece by crucifixion. Extra-biblical history says he led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ. And the governor tried to get his wife to deny Christ, but she would not. Infuriated, he threatened to kill Andrew if she would not reject her Christianity. She refused, so he sentenced Andrew to death. And his death was by crucifixion, except the governor made a request. He said, don't nail him to the cross, but fasten him to the cross. Tie him to the cross, because this would prolong his suffering. We actually have a picture that and because he wasn't nailed and there was no real blood loss right um does anyone really know the the cause of of death when someone's crucified suffocation right asphyxiation you 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 can't hold yourself up and it, it ends up uh cutting off your your air and so it was an x-shaped cross called a a, a saltire And it's commonly known today as St. Andrew's Cross. So I thought um, seeing a picture would kind of lend lend, um, to our understanding. But I want you to listen to the account written by Andrew, or excuse me, written by an author who shares Andrew's final words and death in the book Martyr's Mirror. Great resource. It says this, 
The enemies of the truth, having apprehended and sentenced to death the apostle Andrew, he went joyfully to the place where he was to be crucified, and having come near the cross, he said, O beloved cross, I have greatly longed for thee. I rejoice to see thee erected here. I come to thee with a peaceful conscience and with cheerfulness, desiring that I, who am a disciple of him who hung on the cross, may also be crucified. The apostles said further, The nearer I come to the cross, the nearer I come to God. And the farther I am from the cross, the farther I am from God. The holy apostle hung three days on the cross. He was not silent, however, but as long as he could move his tongue, he instructed the people that stood by the cross in the way of truth, saying, among other things, I thank my Lord Jesus Christ that he, having used me for a time as an ambassador, now permits me to have this body, that I, through a good confession, may obtain everlasting grace and mercy. Remain steadfast in the word and doctrine which you have received, instructing one another that you may dwell with God in eternity and receive the fruit of his promises. The Christians and other pious people besought the governor to give Andrew unto them and take him down from the cross, for it appears that he was not nailed to the cross like Christ, but tied to it. When the apostle learned of this, he cried to God, saying, O Lord Jesus Christ, Suffer not that thy servant who hangs here on the tree for thy name's sake be released to dwell again among men, but receive me. O my Lord and my God, whom I have known, whom I have loved, to whom I cling, whom I desire to see, and in whom I am what I am. Having spoken these words, the holy apostle then committed his spirit into, his, into the hands of his heavenly father. It's clear that Andrew died and was faithful to the very end. And what a blessing and encouragement to see how the Lord Jesus Christ grew him in humility and Christ-likeness. He cultivated compassion where he lacked compassion, right? The Lord grew him to share that same compassion towards the lost. He didn't succumb to the fear of man. He lived a life searching the Old Testament, drawing near the Messiah initially only through the pages of Scripture until he heard of the one who was preaching out in the wilderness and sought him out and then saw him baptized and got to meet him face to face. And oh church, would the same be true of us could the, the, the testimony be said of us that we would earnestly seek him out and draw near to him through the pages of Scripture until we get to meet him face to face? That was his life. That was his life. And he laid it down. Well, the third and final name that we will consider as we work our way down through the list comes again in verse 18. It's the fifth name that Jesus identifies, and it is Philip. The name Philip is compound, two Greek words, phylos, which means love, and hippos, which is the Greek word for horse. And combined, it means lover of horses. 
or horse lover. There's some people out there who really love some horses too. I know my daughter Lydia does. Um, There are four different Philips in the New Testament. First, there's Philip, the son of Herod the Great. Philip's wife, Herodias, left him to become the wife of Herod Antipas. And you recall that caused a a, a big deal because John the Baptist ended up rebuking him and her. And as a result, Herod Antipas had John the Baptist imprisoned because of him being critical of, of the adulterous relationship. And many of you know how the story ends. John the Baptist was imprisoned, and then there was this party, Herod Antipas, and then Herodias, her niece, basically, um, Herod Antipas says, I'll give you anything you want. And mom says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that was granted. But Herod the Great had another son named Philip by his fifth wife, Cleopatra of Jerusalem. And this fellow was the uh, tetrarch of Eturia, and you can see him mentioned in Luke 3.1. The New Testament also mentions a third man named Philip, who was one of the chosen seven in Acts 6, who were called to minister to the needs of the Greek-speaking Jewish widows so that the apostles could devote themselves to the word and prayer. And then according to Acts 8, this third Philip in the scriptures became a powerful evangelist, and it's called Philip the Evangelist to distinguish him between Philip the Apostle. Philip the Evangelist is the one who, of course, led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. So finally, we have our fourth Philip, who, after being called as a disciple, immediately went to share the news with Nathaniel and brought him to meet Christ, which is recorded in John 1, 43 through 46. Philip was blessed to follow Christ and was able to witness many of the miracles that our Lord performed and to hear Jesus preach many of his sermons. Yet I think he also provides a very realistic picture for us as somebody who, whose faith was weak and who doubted at times. Turn with me to John chapter 6. So you can see this starting in the, the first two verses. This provides a little bit of the context. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So Jesus is near Philip's hometown. I want you to remember that. And this huge crowd is following. Now look down at verses 5 through 7. It says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him and said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Verse 6, this he was saying to test them for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And I think just real quick that he may have been asking Philip because Philip is near his hometown, right? If anybody's going to be able to go out and recruit bread and get some food that they might be able to feed such a crowd or to make an effort, I think the Lord was doing this to test him on more than one level. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. And here's what's striking is Philip has already seen Jesus perform all these miracles, but he hadn't yet learned to trust 
and put his faith in Christ for everything, even the impossible. And I think Philip is an accurate reflection of many of us in the church, especially when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ providing the physical resources that we're going to need. And we tend to put our faith in our visa or our MasterCard and somehow think that the Lord isn't able to, to provide that, that we're going to have to muster it up on our own. And Philip has no idea that he's speaking to the one who spoke the entire world into an existence. And so what's he do? He starts with his mathematical calculations. Guessing how much money it's going to take. Hmm, according to my calculations, um, we're in trouble. <laughs> and I think like Philip, sometimes our faith needs to be stretched and grown so that we trust Truly upon the Lord, just as 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And the reason that God has us walk by faith is because he has the full perspective. He sees everything that we don't see. There's so much that we don't have perspective on, and our view is skewed. And he's got everything covered behind the scenes. Everything in our lives covered behind the scenes. And yet we can be so short-sighted, can't we? We, we doubt oh no, we got pregnant with our fourth child. How is the Lord ever going to provide? There's just no way. Hugo, Rita, would you beg to differ? I believe you would. For those who are visiting or new to our church, 10 children. I'm one of eight. The Lord will provide. We often think that if we see something first, that it will enhance our perspective. But that isn't always the case. And we see another faith-stretching example of this with Philip in John chapter 14. And just turn there with me. And this is the last passage that we're going to look at concerning Philip. In the last, or excuse me, first four verses, Jesus is comforting disciples before he goes to the cross and letting them know that in his father's house that there are many dwelling places and that he's going to return for them. And in verse 5, we have doubting Thomas, pre-resurrection, doubting Thomas, asks Jesus a question about where he's going, and Jesus shepherds him trying to help Thomas understand his deity and unity with the father in verses 6 and 7. Now in verse 8, it's doubting Philip's turn. And listen to what Philip says. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. For three years, 
Philip had walked with the Lord. He had gazed into the face of the Lord. He had saw him work. He had saw him minister. He had saw him proclaim the news. He saw miracle after miracle. And yet his faith was still fragile and weak. And like doubting Thomas, he was skeptical. He was pessimistic. He was reluctant to believe unless he could see first. And he was unable to grasp the big picture of Christ's divine power and person in this plan. He was slow to trust. He was slow to understand. His, his thinking was earthbound. And I think it's a description of us many times. I think we can relate, especially when God is stretching us and growing our faith in the midst of unpredictable circumstances, Right? What will we do financially if this happens? What will we do if this or that happens? You have the scenario in your life. I know you do. Oh, I don't know, Lord. What's going to happen if this happens? I don't have enough money to finish school. What happens if... You know the list. So as we consider Philip, you might be tempted to think that someone else would be a better fit as an apostle, right? But remember, it's not about the power and strength of the fragile, finite person. It's about the power and the strength and the indwelling power and strength of the infinite and omnipotent God that dwells within. And Jesus is patiently discipling and shepherding Philip because he, he knows what he's going to become. Do you believe that he knows what you're going to become. How he's growing your faith. How you're going to be used. He does. Later as an apostle, history tells us that Philip went on to preach and teach for several years in Scythia where he planted many churches. He also provided a foundation in cities both in Syria and the upper part of Asia. And his ministry would come to an end in Phrygia and specifically in Hierapolis. And it would be here where Philip encountered a group known as the Ebionites, who were a heretical group of Judaizers who denied the deity of Christ, who also uh, sacrificed to idols. And they blatantly opposed Philip's preaching of the true biblical gospel. And as a result, they had him apprehended, and we have a picture of that. And his head was fastened to a pillar, and they proceeded to stone him to death. And that was how he was martyred. These men gave it all, laying their lives down, embedded into the foundation of the church. And they will forever, right, be immoralized as their names will be embedded into the jewel foundation as Revelation teaches us in the new Jerusalem for all eternity. And it's a costly foundation. And we've seen it and we're only halfway through the list. What is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation of your friendships? What is the foundation of your family? 
Is your life being constructed upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles? And I think the majority of us, if we're asked that question, we're conditioned because we, especially those who have been in the church for a long time, there's this spiritual environment that we're conditioned by where we would answer the same way. What is your foundation? The same thing that the children on the other side of this wall, when they're asked what their foundation is, they'll give the typical Sunday school answer. Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's the, the, the answer that naturally forms. And we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well done. That's the correct answer in principle. I've passed the spiritual test inside of the church. So I'm all good. Next question, please. But when we get outside of these walls... When you step into the classroom with your classmates, when you step into the office with your coworkers, when you step into the privacy of your own home with your family, what is the foundation there? What is the foundation? Is the foundation the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it? Is does it drive the purpose of the relationships that we have with people? Going to work isn't about making widgets. Yeah, that's the toil of man and there's a job and we do it, but it's about the people that we have access to that we build relationships with, right? And, and some workplaces lend... Uh, you know, that, that atmosphere lends itself a little bit more naturally than some places, especially if you're a person who's sitting in your own cubicle and you really, it's you and your computer all day. So you have to even be more strategic about having encounters either before work starts or at breaks or at lunch or at some point, right? But the foundation, and, and I, I, I'm convicted about this too, just even as it relates to uh, friends and, and fellowship, and family. Like, do, do I really believe? Do, do, am I, do, do I really? I mean, I look at th- these men and how they live their life. And, and, and the one thing that encourages me is the same thing that I know will encourage you. And it should encourage you. Like Peter, the rock. Who's sometimes a rock head, right? We talked about that. God patiently grows us, right? He does that. He's doing that work within us. But, but what I, I think we need to do, and, and we don't do oftentimes enough, is to look down and examine the foundation of how we're really constructing our lives. What are we really building upon about it? And being really honest at the heart level, am I building a foundation on Christ? Because I think that's true. And if the stage is a platform and if this is the rock of the foundation and I'm going to build on it and I'm surrounded in this world in which we live and there are so many worldly things out there that are going to tempt us to do what? Build on sand, right? Build on pleasures. Build on that which isn't going to support. We need to, we need to recalculate. We need to take opportunity to look down at the foundation and, and examine really what we're standing upon. 
as it relates, just even in, in family, and those, those of you who are single and aren't married yet, there's going to be a time, and if that's the, the, the burden of your heart and your desire is to be married, the Lord knows that, and he's preparing you, and he's preparing that person, and don't lose sight of that. It could be that you need to grow for a little while before you get that stewardship. That's the reality. That's the reality. You need to grow a little bit more. Or maybe you're where you need to be, but they're not yet. And so all the more reason why you need to be praying for your future spouse. But let me just give you a little heads up. When your family starts and you begin, you know, Lord willing to have a family, and whether you have your own biological children or whether you have your biological and adopt, whatever the case might be, the foundation needs to be what it is even in your personal life. You can prepare for it now. You, you build your life on that foundation. And I was, Victoria, I always talk to her about my sermons and what I'm going to preach, and she's always asking me, you know, how, how? So, right, how, how do I do that? How do I build that foundation and I think we just, we, we just look at the example of their lives and it, it, it's all about proximity to Christ and drawing in nearness to him and growing closer to him. And that foundation will develop. It will help you weed out those things of the world, those, those desires, those idolatrous things, those sand-sinking things. Even the things that really don't matter, even the wood, hay, and stubble that, that's going to get burned up. You know what I mean? And if we look at these men, you know what they were doing, and, and it's something that we celebrate as a church. They are progressing in discipleship. The Lord Jesus Christ was growing them. And so that's the opportunity for us that we also will build our foundation on Christ. And if we build our foundations on poor scheduling that minimizes our opportunities with Christ, then we shouldn't be surprised when there's a great collapse in our lives. We shouldn't, right? It was, we were on sand. We were on sand. And the same is true with relationships. Better to re-examine the foundations now than to compromise the integrity of the entire structure while we keep building, hoping that the structure of our family and friendships doesn't fall, even though that we know that the foundation is compromised, that I truly am spending a lot of time with people, and it really has nothing to do with evangelism, or is it about Christ? Right? And so now's the time. As we look at the, the, these men, as we look at their lives, this is the challenge that we all have. This is what he would have us see this day. And may our study of the 12 hand-picked men that the Lord Jesus Christ selected as the apostles who helped lay the foundation of the church continue to bless us all as we look to them, as we grow and have opportunities to grow. Please pray with me.